You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest, Dr. Sean McDowell. He's come out with a new book, A Rebel's Manifesto, Choosing Truth, Real Justice, and Love Amid the Noise of Today's World. As you might recall, he was on my show a couple of months ago, and we talked about his book, Chasing Love. But today we're going to talk about this book. And Sean is an author, a speaker, and associate professor at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, my alma mater. He has two master's degrees and a PhD in apologetics and worldview studies. And he also has a YouTube channel, so you can check that out. Uh, Also, I just got back from Tucson, where I spoke at Calvary Oro Valley. I had a great time there. Such a a good day. It was a really long day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it was really, really great. And uh, as a, re- a reminder or an announcement, really, next week, next Thursday, May 25th at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, we're going to have a live Q&A on the show. So please join us for that. It'll be really fun. Josh will be here. And uh, we're going to try to, you know, take as many questions as possible. It'll probably go, I don't know, two hours from two to four pacific standard time so please join us for that and we're just waiting for sean to join there he is welcome sean mcdowell thanks for having me beckett good to have you back on uh last time i don't how long has it been since you were on not that long a few weeks i think no i think it's been i think it's been probably like a couple months time goes by sean yeah, that's a couple months is a few weeks <laughs> it's the same thing <laughs> But last time we talked about your book, what was the book? Ch- uh, Chasing, what was it? Chasing Love. Chasing Love, yes. Yeah. But this time we have, you've written another, but I don't know where you find it. Where do you, you have like, you have three kids, you have a wife, you have a life, you have, you're a professor, you're a teacher, and then you have time to write all kinds of books. So today's book we're going to talk about, which is uh, coming out, is this coming, is this out now or is it It pre-order? is out early July. But can people pre-order it on Amazon? They can. Yep. Okay, yep. good. And so it's called A Rebel's Manifesto, chase, uh, Choosing Truth, Real Justice, and Love Amid the Noise of Today's World. Uh, I just read it. I highly recommend this book. It's, it's so good. And um, uh, today's world is very, very noisy, <laughs> as we all know. So first of all, why the title? Because because when I first picked up the, when I first got this book, uh, you know, it kind of looks like an Antifa, ma- uh, you know, manual guide. <laughs> so, like, why why a rebel's manifesto? Well, when most people think of a rebel, I'm probably not the first person who comes to their mind if they happen to know who I am. Anyways, that's because a lot of the way we think of a rebel is left over from the 80s and 90s when rock music captured rebel against the system, fight against the system. Billy Idol. Yeah, yeah, 
Billy Idol captured that really well. I mean, you just search 80s, 90s music rebel and all these songs come up. It was like fight the system. (laughs) And typically the system was kind of the institution and oftentimes kind of more conservative values behind it. Well, what I got thinking not long ago, I was like, what does it mean to be a contrarian today? What does it mean to be a rebel? Because most people just cancel. Most people demonize. Most people are fighting some culture war. It actually seems to me that a contrarian today would be, would be someone who'd reach out and say, you know what? I want to get to know you. I want to hear your story. I want to understand you, be charitable towards you, see if we can find some common ground, and really show the love that Jesus showed. So the title's meant to get people to think about rebel a little bit differently and to be a contrarian but to be a different kind of contrarian. Yeah. I mean, back in the day in the eighties and nineties, it was, you know, punk rock to, it was punk rock to be punk rock. Now it's punk rock to be a Christian and to be Christ-like and loving that's punk rock. (laughs) So (laughs) we live in a different time. Now um, you actually, you talk about this on in the, what, what page is this page five? You mentioned that about Jesus, you mentioned Jesus never compromised his convictions. He was kind and gracious towards others. That's what it means to be a rebel today. Mm. So that, I think that really encapsulates what this whole book is about and what it means to be a Christian in, in a, you know, in a very crazy culture. Jesus lived in grace and he lived in truth. And I think people make broadly one of two mistakes. Either they say things like, I'm just going to speak the truth, and it doesn't matter if you get hurt or offended. I'm a prophet. I speak truth. But it's often not done in love. It's an angry tweet or a post or something. On the other hand, there's people who say, well, maybe love is just helping somebody live out their truth, affirming whatever somebody believes about themselves. And they end up compromising what truth is. Jesus was fiercely committed to truth. We see this in his life. He was willing to die for it. He was also love incarnated. He was love and truth, truth and relationships. That's what Christians are called to do today. And it's what Jesus always did. In a sense, there's nothing new under the sun, but we happen to live in such a noisy, divided, caustic culture that it's actually those who speak truth, but do it not to win an argument, not to sound smart, who actually stand above the crowd. And I think speak a message of Jesus to people just through their kindness. There's a deficit of kindness in our culture today. I'd love more Christians to rise up and say, I'm going to be faithful scripture. I'm not going to compromise it like Jesus did, but not that Jesus compromised, but like Jesus didn't compromise (laughs) but I'm going to do it with kindness and grace and civility. That's the call for people today. Well, I mean, on a personal note, and you're going to be embarrassed by this, but I've noticed in your life, you're very good at that. You're very good at balancing grace and truth. And you're, you're, there's never kind of like a, there's never a mean spiritedness about you, which mm. is, and also with your kids, I see your kids and um, I see kind of posts of them and I've met them before yeah, a couple of times, but they're so just like, I've never met more well-adjusted kids in my life. They're so amazing. 
Well, I you might be overstating <laughs> stuff a little bit. Oh, do I not know the deep amazing. dark secrets of your oh, kids? No, my kids are amazing. I love I love them to death. I appreciate you saying that about me. I really try to be kind. I mean, there's plenty of tweets I've taken down. There's plenty of things I've had to apologize for. I don't get to talk about this because I have it all figured out. I get to talk about it because this is what Jesus talked about. This is what our culture needs, and just what I'm trying to do and model. And there's a lot of people receptive to this. Right. And it's, and with a rebel's manifesto, uh, it sounds, it seems like just like, like chasing love is this, is the audience younger people? It's like teenagers, right? Or college kids. Yeah, that's right. It's written for teenagers. So I think younger college students and maybe more advanced, like junior high students who really want to wrestle with these topics, but there's 30 topics and they're each probably 1500 words, which is four to five pages. It's not that long. And I said, I'm going to make these 1,500 words. So when I talk about immigration or transgender or climate change, I've got to be really economical, maximize every sentence to make it count. So it packs a punch, so to speak. But there's stories and examples and illustrations just to help kids think Christianly about these topics. Yeah. And you talk about, I mean, the culture obviously is... Uh, completely upside down and very it's it's very it's a, we're living in very strange times I mean that's obvious but so and you talk about this in the book and uh, I think maybe the first chapter or just the introduction actually or I can't remember but you talk about living like Daniel and how Daniel resolved to honor God regardless of the cost now talk about a little bit about I talk about that in my book about Shadrach Meshach and Abednego being in exile in Babylon and not compromising the truth, but talk about that a little bit, how we can be like Daniel in this crazy culture. I think Daniel is one of the best examples that Christians should look to today because here they are exiled in Babylon. And we certainly live in a culture that is increasingly at odds, minimally speaking, with Christian views in particular about sexuality. And Daniel is going to be trained for three years in a new language. He's given a new name. He's going to learn new history and geography. He's basically taught at Babylon University, so to speak, for three years. Then he's going to graduate and stand before the king. And you imagine the pressure that Daniel had. The temple was destroyed. They're ripped out of their land. This is the low spot for Israel in a foreign land, trying to figure out what are we going to eat? Are we going to have jobs? Are we going to be safe? And all of a sudden, he's given this potential favor with the king, which would give him everything that their family wants in this foreign land. Well, all he had to do was eat this non-kosher food. Can you imagine all the justifications in Daniel's mind? Well, I'm protecting my family. Well, it's only food. I mean, we can think of all the justifications why Daniel could just do it. Well, I'm honoring God and I'm going to be a secret believer within, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's reign and speak truth. I mean, you know, all these justifications we could have, but Daniel knew God's calling was higher than his immediate calling. And so he goes, it says in Daniel 1, 8, one of my favorite verses says he determined in his heart not to defile himself. Mm -hmm. Determined is past tense. So Daniel had made a decision and become the kind of person that when pressure came, which could include his reputation which could potentially include his life. Nebuchadnezzar was ruthless sometimes and maybe would want to make an example out of him. Daniel's like, no, I'm going to stand strong and do the right thing. So that's a model for today. But the other thing Daniel does is he tries to think through 
how do I honor the king and give the king what he wants without me having to compromise my convictions? So he comes up with his whole vegetable diet and it ends up working. So not only did Daniel have conviction, but he had remarkable wisdom how to live in a culture at odds with his beliefs. That's what I'm calling Christians to today. And I think Daniel's a beautiful model that says, when it's all said and done, we cannot compromise truth. Now, with that said, Beckett, we got to make sure we die on the right hills. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who die on secondary issues today. We got to keep the main thing, the main thing, but stand strong on the main thing, but yeah. cultivate wisdom, how to just live. And, you know, on some of the ethical issues we may get to, it is not black and white. It's going to take a lot of careful thinking to navigate uh, some of these issues today from a Christian perspective. Yeah. And um, let's keep that Daniel framework in mind as we're going through. I mean, obviously I can't get to every chapter in the book, but I, I just want to highlight some of them or some of the ideas and some of them. And so first let's um, let's ask, I just want to write this down before I forget, because you just made me think of something, but what, what, what does it mean? You talk about this one in one of your chapters. What does it mean to love our neighbors? Cause this is a big deal. I mean, we live in a culture right now, you know, where love is love and you have to be affirming of every single thing, LGBTQ, all kinds of things. You have to be a hundred percent affirming or you're considered a bigot or a transphobe or a homophobe. So what does it mean biblically to love our neighbors? You know, what's interesting about this is sometimes our culture gets love right. And sometimes our culture gets love wrong. So we see in, you know, this 10 years of Avengers superhero movies and, you know, spoiler, <laughs> your favorite had you love that. Of time. You knew it was only a matter of time before it came to superheroes <laughs> with me. But Iron Man lays down his life as the only way to save half the universe from death at the hands of Thanos. It's a willing sacrifice. Like Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. Our culture celebrated that because we understand love means putting the other first. It means sacrificing of yourself. That is written on our DNA as human beings. So our culture intuitively understands love. But on the flip side, I think it's been contorted and twisted, as you indicated, that we think love is affirming however somebody believes themselves to be rooted in their feelings. Hence, we hear people say, just live your truth. This is where as Christians, we depart. I don't affirm what somebody believes necessarily. We are to love what is in somebody's objective best interest. And just like the people who took Jesus to the cross thought they were doing the right side thing and thought they were on the right side history, what they were doing was actually morally wrong, putting an innocent man to death. So we have to be able to look through and know what is in the objective interest of people and stand for that. Even if we get called names and told we're bigoted, that's a loving thing to do. And just, I've been reading first Peter with, with high school students. I teach this class part-time and it's full of written for people who find themselves at odds with their culture at this time. And Peter's like, don't be surprised if they hate you. Don't be surprised if they mistreat you. Because you worship a crucified savior, this is what they did to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we should have a martyr's complex. I'm not trying to say that. But we have a faith that's radical. 
We have a faith that in some ways is offensive. And the loving thing to do is to live it out uncompromisingly and find a way to live in the objective best of our neighbors, even if they're going to differ with us over what that is. Yeah. And that reminds me of a couple of passages in the Old Testament and New uh, Robert Gagnon mentioned this, and I, I love this. In Leviticus 19, verse 17, he says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason, reason frankly with him, with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. And he was saying that, you know, basically loving your neighbor as yourself means telling them the truth. Mm. And, you know, it's, and I talk about this all the time. It's, you know, when I, when I talk about homosexual behavior, et cetera, being a sin, a lot of people take that as hate speech, but it's, it's actually love. I love speech because I mean, honestly, like I don't, I don't care about winning some debate. All I, I literally, all I care about is people's eternal souls. Like that's what I care about the, their eternal destination. And so telling the truth, I'm so happy that those kids in the coffee shop told me the truth. When I asked them, what does your church believe about homosexuality? Yeah. They told me the truth. And I loved that. I love that they didn't hide that. And, and, um, and also Paul, um, yeah, I love the way he defines love in, in first Corinthians 13. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, which is uh, very appropriate, uh, apropos today, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So, yeah, I think the biblical view of love is very countercultural. It's very different from the culture. It's totally countercultural and it's kind of rebellious and it's contrarian to say, hey, I think you're wrong about this. And here's why. That's just now, now, ironically, people will often say, you know, they'll say you shouldn't judge, but they're the ones who judge. They'll say you shouldn't be exclusivistic, but they're the ones who are exclusivistic. What's really contrarian is to hold a conservative sexual ethic or just the ethic and life of Jesus and live that out. That's contrarian, but yeah. that's what Jesus did. That's what Christians have died for. And that's what he calls us to do today. Now, in First Peter, what's interesting, First Peter says, sometimes when you live differently and don't engage in the sensual behavior of the world, they will hate you and mock you because of this. That's in First Peter. It talks about this in chapter yeah. four. But in chapter two, Peter's like, actually, when you live this out, it will draw some people to glorify God because of your behavior. Bottom line, Peter's like, speak the truth and suffer well and leave the results to God. That's a very freeing way. Like you said, a minute ago, Beckett, you're not interested in winning arguments. I'm an apologist and I'm actually not either. I know I can't change anybody's beliefs. I can't even get my kids to believe certain things I want them to believe, <laughs> but I'm responsible to hopefully be charitable, to be kind and in the right way at the right time to speak truth, even if it's unpopular. You mentioned just a minute ago about uh, Jesus saying, love, love, uh, judge not lest you be judged. Talk about the kind of the misapprehension of that, because people in the culture love to quote that from Jesus when it comes to, you know, sort of Christians 
uh, having a sort of moral framework that they talk about. And so talk about well, what's the, the misapprehension of that, that quote from Jesus, judge not. Well, that's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter seven. And in seven one, Jesus is like, judge not lest you be judged. Now he gives an illustration we all know, but oftentimes does not get connected to the statement where he says, take the plank out of your own eye before you take like, you know, the sliver out of your brother's eye. What's the point is that we're quick to judge others without Mm -hmm. seeing our own failures first judge ourselves. And then once we've judged ourselves, we're in a position to judge other believers. So Jesus is not saying don't make judgments when he says, judge not lest you be judged. The context is don't judge hypocritically because the standard by which you judge others will be put back on you. And that's why John chapter seven, verse 24, Jesus says, makes make a righteous judgment. And by the way, back in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus talks about false prophets. How are we supposed to know what a false prophet is and judge good fruit from or decipher good fruit for bad fruit if we're not supposed to make judgments? Right. Now, the kind of judgment we can't do is we can't judge somebody's heart. And I think that's a part of what Paul warns us from in First Corinthians chapter five, not judging outsiders. First, let's look within. So as we talk about a rebel's manifesto in our culture, I'm actually more concerned for the state of the church, that we are living holy, we're living the way God wants us to live, and then secondarily, how we engage the culture. And I would put it this way. I would much rather lose the culture wars and do it in a way that loves God and loves other people than win the culture wars in a way that doesn't love them. Right. Right. And it's, it's, that's a, such a difficult balance to strike in this world. I mean, it's like, how much do you fight against abortion? How much as a Christian, how much do you fight against the L, you know, the LGBTQ movement, how, like how, I mean, what, what are just kind of some practical, now that you mentioned that, I just, I just, what are practical ways or what, how do you think about that in terms of how far do you go, you know, to, as being a prophet and, and, yeah. const, you know, constantly saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Or how, how do you balance that? Partly, we, God has given us different gifts and different voices. We still need prophetic voices today. But in a culture where everybody's saying shocking and alarming and judging, I think a voice that we often miss amidst that in the Christian circles is the pastoral, gracious, kind voice that will see the good in others. So right. we still need a prophetic voice who speaks truth. Now, with that said, People also have different callings. There's some people who are called to make films, to just tell beautiful stories that advance ideas that are synonymous with the gospel. We need people to defend in law, freedom of religion and freedom of speech. That is a calling if it's done in a certain way for lawyers and others. So there's a different ways and different gifts. What I'm talking about more is just how we love our neighbors interpersonally in relationship, what this looks like. Because sometimes in the church, we go, well, it's the lawyer's job. Well, it's the pastor's job. And I'm trying to say, no, it's all of our jobs to just reach out to our neighbor, reach out to our classmates. 
and love them the way Jesus loved them. Now, when it comes to political issues, I I would repeat something I said earlier. We got to keep the main thing, the main thing. Like abortion is dealing with human life, Mm -hmm. human life. It's hard to think of an issue with more at stake than abortion. And if the unborn is a member of the human race, a full member, and the science is clear, and if humans get human rights and human, a human right is right to life, then the unborn is a full member of the human race with a right to life. And it is a grave evil and injustice that their lives are being taken from them. And Christians, as we care for orphans and widows, are to fight for the justice and protection of the unborn. On all issues, Beckett, it is really hard for me to just be kind and gracious on abortion <laughs> because so much is at stake. I'd also yeah. say issues of marriage. Yeah. I mean, marriage is fundamental. Kids need and deserve a mom and a dad. Yeah. And same-sex marriage undermines that. Yes. So that's significant. Now, immigration is also very significant. There's people fleeing from their homes. What does it mean to enforce justice in our borders for safety? That's a righteous call of government, broadly supported in 1 Peter and Romans 13. But we're also called to love the sojourners. We're also called to love the exiles. So that's an important topic. I mean, all of these are important topics. We just have to ask, what is the main thing? And if we do fight for these, do it in a way that's honorable, do it in a way that's motivated by love, not by power, because we've fallen short of that a lot of times in the Christian, in the Christian church. Um, yeah. And you, you mentioned politics and you, in the, in the book, a rebel's manifesto, you talk about two common myths in discussions about faith and politics. What are those two common myths? Oh, gosh, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> well, me. it's on page 72. I'll tell you what they wait, are. Wait, page 65. <laughs> page 72. Um, hey, oh, page 72. <laughs> it, it's uh, number, the myth number one is good okay. intentions are enough. Yes. This is really, really important because there's an increase among millennials and Gen Zers supporting socialist ideas. And right. some of this is because I'm a Gen Xer and I actually <clears throat> went to Russia in the late 80s before the wall came down and I saw the Berlin Wall come down. I saw Russia change. I know what it was like under the Soviet Union. So I have no illusions about Marxism or socialism. There's a generation that's been raised up that hasn't seen this. Yeah. And so they tend to be more amenable to it. So they look and they go, well, socialism talks about equality, talks about caring for people, talks about all corporately working together. My problem with socialism is not the idea in principle. My problem is it doesn't work. It actually results in more harm. It's never worked anywhere. So it's not enough to have good ideas in economics. It's not enough to have good ideas in politics. If it's not rooted in human nature, it's not rooted in objective reality, then it's probably going to result in more harm than good. Okay. So what's the second, the second myth when it comes to politics and, and faith? The second myth is that you can't legislate morality. I was having a conversation recently with somebody and we were talking about abortion. And then that very sensitive topic came up about rape. And I made my case uh, for the position that I hold. 
And at that point, he looks at me and goes, well, you can't force your morals upon other people. And I stopped and tried to point out, I said, wait a minute, every law is forcing morals on somebody. Right. We have a law against rape. That's forcing somebody's morals that rape is wrong on others. The commandment not to murder, the teaching not to steal, like all of these are forcing a kind of morality. But all of a sudden, when it came to the issue of rape, he shifted it and was like, well, you can't legislate morality. So my point was every law legislates somebody's morality. Let's not use this to dismiss a law we disagree with. Because this is what the law does. So let's, if we're talking about that sensitive issue, let's talk about the facts and stick with that rather than dismiss somebody's position by saying you can't legislate morality when that's the only thing you really can legislate. Yeah, that's good. And you you talk about these little demonic gadgets called smartphones. (laughs) What are... (laughs) You talk about this in the book. What are some ways that, I mean, I just feel bad for the, the, I feel bad, the kids today. I feel bad for kids today, literally. I mean, because it's, it's, um, I can't imagine being just up against this all day long, 24 seven and being, you know, you talk about screen time and uh, how do, how does the screen, screen time shape? young people how do what does it do well the first thing that i want young people to understand or all people to understand is that smartphones are morally neutral they're not like a torture gadget that is designed to torture people they are technology that are intended to help us send emails give calls check social media Within a I know, but would you agree that life before smartphones was way better? Oh, but 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 hold, but hold on, I'm, I'm, I guess it depends what you mean by better. My point is they're Palmer. not morally bad, but right. they are not worldview neutral. They do affect the way we see the world. They do affect the way we process truth, and they do affect relationships. Some positive. And in some very negative ways that many in this generation just take for granted and don't see how it affects them. So even just think about processing truth. I remember the first time I was speaking to a group of atheists at Berkeley, probably 12 or 15 years ago, and they were Googling what I said on the spot, looking for mistakes I was going to make. And I thought, wow, this just made interaction live in real time. And I remember that shift. Now this generation has endless input from endless endless voices at their fingertips. So you begin to wonder, given that somebody smart can have a view on any perspective, how can I have confidence that anything is actually true? That's one way that a smartphone affects the thinking of this generation. It also can affect their relationships. So I try to walk through in the book different ways that a smartphone being on this thing all the time can be a diversion that affects people from really dealing with loneliness, for example. And I gave, I share an example in the book of a, I was having this freshman class journal and I said, why do you think we keep ourselves so busy and constantly distracted on smartphones? And this girl wrote, she's a freshman. She said, I do it because I don't want to slow down and pause and feel the hurt that's in my heart. Mm -hmm. 
Now, the smartphone is not the cause of the hurt, but it's a tool that enables people to stay more distracted from it and avoid dealing with it. So all I'm walking through in this chapter is I don't want to demonize smartphones. No young person is going to read it and they're just going to say I'm an old (laughs) buddy daddy, although they never use that word. I want to say, hey, there's good to this. There's positive. I love my smartphone. But you got to think about how it affects you, your relationship with others, your relationship with God, your spiritual life. Let's be wise and discerning about this. Yeah. And you mentioned worldviews. Talk about a little bit about worldviews and how they affect how just people in general view things like, let's say, abortion. Mm. Yeah. One of the things that many of us, not just picking on young people, don't realize is everybody has a worldview. It's inescapable. Mm -hmm. But most people haven't taken the time to think about where their worldview comes from, why they hold it, and if their worldview is even true. It's like putting on a pair of glasses and just operating through the glasses, but not thinking about why am I wearing this pair of glasses? Does it distort reality? Does it bring precision? So it's it's kind of unassumed. It's, it's deeper assumptions that are typically unexpressed and people may not be aware of that motivate the way that people live. So if you take almost any ethical issue, it's going to come back to some core worldview assumptions if you probe deeply enough. Things like euthanasia, right? At the surface, it sounds, you hear people say like, oh, I want to die with dignity. Well, that carries a certain idea about the world that dignity is something I can have or lose based on the way I'm treated, how I look, the pain that I'm going through. That -hmm. means somebody could die without dignity if they can't take it into their own hands. A Christian ethic says dignity is not something you can gain or lose. It's something you have because God has made us in his image. It's intrinsic to who we are. And the question is, how do we suffer well without taking our lives into our own hands? These two different worldview commitments are going to shape how we understand dignity, how we understand compassion, and how we deal with end-of-life issues. And that's true with every ethical issue, with abortion, right? When it's all said and done, is the unborn made in the image of God? Do humans have value regardless of skin color, regardless of intelligence, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of how much money they have, regardless whether they're in the womb or out of the womb, that changes everything. So almost every ethical issue we walked in this book, even things like artificial intelligence, at some point are going to come back to big questions. Is there a God? What does it mean to be human? Is there right and wrong? Do humans have value? These core worldview issues shape the way we address and answer different ethical issues. Yeah. And so let's, let's now turn to sex. Um, You have a chapter on sex and you talk about, you know, God's design is, is for our good. God's design for sex is for our good sex between one man, one woman for life and a covenant. And uh, talk about that a little bit and how it brings freedom, as you say, because, you know, I, obviously I've talked about this before, but, for years and years as when I was living as a gay man 
in Hollywood. I thought I was sexually liberated. Mm. Little did I know I was in bondage. Mm. And it wasn't until after I came to faith in Christ that I fully understood that bondage. And it was so stunning to me. It was like, wow, I didn't even realize how, how in bondage I was. And, um, and then when I understood God's design for sex and that he, you know, he, God created sex and he created sex to be, and it's good. And he created it to be expressed within the boundaries of a covenantal marriage for life between one man, one woman. To me, that just was such a huge revelation because it was like, wow, like God, he, that's, that's for a specific purpose. Like he wants to protect us as human beings and he wants us to, he wants to see us flourish and he's, he cares about our well being, and anything outside of that leads premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexual sex, all that leads to either temporal or eternal destruction. And it's so dangerous and harmful. So just talk about, I mean, I've talk about that. Talk about how God's design is, is for our good. So when I ask young people to define freedom, typically they'll say, do whatever you want without restraint, do whatever you want without restraint. And I'll push back a little bit. I'll say, okay, it's freedom doing whatever you want. Imagine there's a dad who comes home from work. He's tired. Doesn't feel like spending time with his kids, helping with the dishes and spending time with his wife. What he wants to do is go to his office and look at porn for a few hours. And so he does it. He did what he wanted to do. Is he free? And students pretty much hesitate at that and go, (laughs) no. And then I point out, say, okay, wait a minute. So you can actually do what you want to do and not be free. So the problem is he actually had the wrong wants. Mm -hmm. Freedom's not doing what you want. It's actually cultivating the right wants. Now, the problem with the direction I'm going is I'm implying that not all wants and desires are equal. And there's a purpose and design for how we're supposed to live. People intuitively know this when you point out a want that they have. Now, if somebody resists and says porn is fine, I'll say, okay, some dad wants to go sexually abuse kids. Is that okay? Like you can at least come to some point where everybody's going to concede that doing what you want is not right. Right. I'll say, okay. So then if, if freedom is not just doing what you want, but cultivating the right wants, is freedom living without restraint? I'll say, imagine two people at a piano. One person sits down, takes a bat and just bashes it without restraint, does whatever they want to do it. The other person sits down and understands the design and purpose of the piano and has practiced and cultivated the discipline and ability to play the piano according to its design and plays Bach, Mozart, beautiful worship music. Who's more free? And even then, students will intuitively know bashing the piano, I guess that lacks restraint, but that's not free. It's the one who makes beautiful music, who's more free. So the point is, freedom's not do what you want if you have the wrong wants. Freedom's not rejecting restraint. It's actually inviting the right restraint. Yeah, That's why I would argue the freest basketball player on the planet is Steph Curry because he has disciplined himself so much. He can shoot the ball from anywhere. <laughs> he didn't just show up and do that. He has restrained himself and put in time and discipline himself to be more free. So if there's a God who made us to live a certain way, just like my smartphone has been designed to function a certain way, 
It's when we know that design and align our wants with the creator's want and the right restraint that we're set free in a very practical way is in my relationship with my wife. People think they're free if they want to live together with somebody else. I'm free. I can live with my girlfriend if I want to. I'll say it's interesting that people who live together first compared to those who are married, Mm -hmm. you actually find more disagreement, more physical violence, more cheating on one another. There's a qualitative difference between living together and between being married. What the difference is if you're living with somebody you can just walk out the door and be done. It's finished. Yeah. Even if you have a disagreement, but if my wife and I disagree and maybe we're not happy with each other, there's a commitment there for life that says, we're going to figure this out. It's going to be tough, but we're going to do this together. It's actually that restraint and that commitment that sets us free to love and be loved in a deeper fashion that somebody can't experience without that restraint. So all that is to say God is good and his commandments are for our good because like you said, Beckett, he wants us to flourish. Yeah. And you mentioned, I may have mentioned this to you before, but uh, there was a study done and uh, with, with couples that live together before they get married and they, you know, it's a common thing where a male and a female live together and they think they think oh well we're going to get married in a few years so like let's just live together for now and it's fine you know eventually we're going to get getting married the problem with that one of the well one of the kind of just a secular problem with that is that the study showed that i deep down humans know that there's something illicit about that about just living with without living together without being married, just mm-hmm. deep in the recesses of our, you know, our hearts. And so what that does is it creates this um, sort of excitement and titillation because you you know you're doing something wrong. And so once that couple does eventually get married, that excitement is gone. So what do they do? So one of the partners or both of the partners start to to look elsewhere for that excitement. And that's when affairs start to happen. So that's mm-hmm. one of the inherent dangers of, of living together before you get married. That's a beautiful way to look at it because those feelings aren't bad. We love the feeling of falling in love. There's something euphoric and good and beautiful about that. But when we get married and that feeling doesn't just bubble up the way it did in a first date and we have to work at it and sacrifice for one another, there's a deeper, richer meaning that comes from that relationship so much far beyond just those feelings. So the person that lives in the cycle you're talking about is always looking for the next person they think is going to fill them up and make them feel good. They don't realize until they die to themselves and sacrifice for another and invest when they don't feel like it. Until they do those things, you're not going to get the richer love and sacrifice that Jesus talks about. And this is true for friendship as well, not just for marriage. It's true for all human relationships. That's what's missing our culture, living together. And I think that's a great example that you gave. Yeah. And uh, you do a chapter on homosexuality. And, um, you, you know, I've answered this question in different ways, but I like how you answer this question. Can you... I know this is, I get this question every time I speak somewhere. Can you be gay and Christian? Mm. I get that question all the time as well. 
And what we have to ask is, what do we mean by gay? And what do we mean by Christian? Right. So if we mean by Christian, uh, someone who truly is following Jesus and filled with the spirit in the historic Christian sense. Let's just assume that pretty simple. Then the question becomes, what do we mean by gay? If we mean by the way it's often defined as having same-sex attraction, of course, I see no reason why somebody couldn't have same-sex attraction and be a Christian. My goodness, some of the holiest, most thoughtful, God-loving people I know have same-sex attraction. Besides, all of us have attractions that don't line up with God's design for how we're supposed to live in sexuality and beyond in this life. So I find no reason to think that's the case. Others would say, what about a same-sex sexual orientation, which is not just attraction, but it seems to be more of a fixed, ongoing a part of who somebody is that somebody didn't choose. And I don't think people choose that. I would say, sure, we all have broken parts about us that mm-hmm. through our lifetime, we are aiming and trying through God's spirit and grace to line up with his desire for ourselves. So of course, somebody with the same sex sexual orientation uh, could be a Christian. Now, what about when we say identity? Someone who says, I am gay, but doesn't practice. To me, I would question the wisdom of that. I'm not convinced that's a wise moniker to use for a range of reasons I won't go into, but I'm not going to question somebody's salvation because they have same-sex attraction and want to identify as gay, maybe for missionary purposes or to connect with a community. The real question comes <clears throat> down is what the scripture talks about is behavior. That's what we see in Romans chapter one. That's what we see in first Corinthians chapter six. And that's also tied to how Jesus defines sexuality to be experienced in behavior, in marriage of one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. So can somebody engage in same-sex sexual behavior and be a Christian? Well, we got to nuance this as well, because there's mm-hmm. plenty of people who engage in this and then they will be repentant. They will fall short and they're in a process of God healing them and just sanctifying them through their life. I sure hope we can believe in Jesus and have failures that we repeat a few times, although unfortunate to experience God's grace in our life, because I continue to fail in a range of areas in my life and find myself apologizing to my kids and my wife all the time on different areas. Mm -hmm. Now, can somebody say, I'm a Christian and I'm unrepentant? And I'm going to engage in same-sex sexual behavior. That's where Beckett, I would speak the truth and I would say, time out. Mm-hmm. Only God can judge somebody's heart. I can't judge somebody's heart. But scripture is very clear about God's design for sex within marriage of one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. All of the vice passages are serious about sexual immorality, not just homosexuality, but a range of sexually immoral behavior. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 that practicing same-sex sexual behavior can keep you from entering the kingdom of God. So if I didn't answer that truthfully and boldly, I don't think I'm loving my neighbor by that. So it's all said and done, God judges somebody's heart. But that's where I would say, time out. If you're living in unrepentant, same-sex sexual behavior, 
you are seriously putting your soul in jeopardy before the Lord in violating God's design for sex. And I'll tell you, every time I say that, Beckett, I look in the mirror because I don't want to just call out a certain group of people without looking at myself and saying, do I have idols in my life? Mm -hmm. Have I controlled my tongue? Am I jealous? Et cetera. But that's the careful nuance I think we have to give when we're asked that question. Yeah. Um, And I talk about that too, about in my book about how this issue is same, but different because it, there's gay pride parades. There's not, you know, greed pride parades or or adultery. There's not adultery pride parades. Um, And so it's a different, it's become such an identity, obviously in our culture from the, in the last 50 years, it's gone from a behavior to an identity, identity, even when in in the eighties, when I was in high school, Gen Xer, uh, it was still, very much. I mean, at least in Dallas, I mean, it was a behavior, you know, it wasn't, it was people weren't really identifying as gay. Uh, or if they were, it was kind of like, it was, it was seen as it was odd, but, um, and so it's, and then also in the last 50 years as Robert, I think it's Robert Riley, Robert O'Reilly. I can't remember his name, but he wrote the book making gay. Okay. I don't know if you've read that. It's brilliant, but, um, Michael, it's not Michael Brown. No, it's, it's Robert Riley or Robert. Oh, O'Reilly. yes. I have read that. It's been a while. Yeah. Michael it's, Brown it's, wrote a, a different book, a couple books on that. That's right. But he says, you know, yeah, it's, we, it, homosexual, homosexual behavior has gone from a sin to a sacrament in the last 50 years as mm. well. So it is, it's hard to, as you say, I mean, you, to, when you think, when you believe that a behavior that's sinful is not only righteous and good, but even holy. And uh, then, and, and you don't repent, you, you won't ever think that you need to repent of that behavior. That's, that's the, that's the kind of the key di- <clears throat> difference with this, this particular sin issue is it, <clears throat> you, it, it, it's difficult to repent of something you think is good. So yeah. that that's a big problem. I, I agree. I don't know that I can add, anything to that, but it raises questions for Christians that we could, we could unpack with somebody who's LGBTQ. Do you go right to the sin at the heart of their identity, or do you go to the person of Jesus more broadly speaking, Mm -hmm. and then show downstream what it means for their sexual behavior? And obviously in your case, it was somebody speaking truth directly to you. That's exactly what you needed to hear. So I'm not sure there's a blanket way we have to always approach that. We've got to speak truth in the right way, but ultimately it's about the person of Jesus and who he is and the forgiveness he offers us in all areas of our lives. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just, let's just end on this last, uh, you do a chapter on trans uh, and Mm. It's, you know, a crazy time. Uh, and I don't know if you've read Irre- Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier. I'm sure you have. Um, a brilliant book. She's not, I don't think she's a believer, but a brilliant book nonetheless. And, and she talks about, and it, it really affects, it's really affecting right now in our culture, teen girls. And so what is, you talk about this in that chapter, what is the biblical view of gender? So one of the things that Abigail talks about, as you know, is rapid onset gender dysphoria. 
mm-hmm. which in Britain was like a 4,000 increase, 4,000 percentage increase over a short period of time. And in the U.S., I think it's about a 1,700% increase of adolescent girls without any history of gender dysphoria with a high percentage of autism, very connected with a friend group and deeply influenced by people online, shifting very rapidly to a gender identity. She says it's almost like it's become a social contagion for young girls to have a way of processing the difficulty of being a young girl today, which social media just exacerbates. That's a phenomena that is more recent, the past maybe five or 10 years, at least we've had attention drawn to that. Gender dysphoria, of course, has been around for a while. Now, biblical view of gender, I would say, you go back to Genesis, it says God made them male and female. We are intrinsically sexed beings. God could have made us asexual. He could have made three or four sexes. He made us male and female. So our height, our intelligence, our skin color is arguably secondary to the core of who we are, but being sexed is at the heart of what it means to be human. That's step number one. Step number two, we are body and soul. We are embodied souls. We're not a soul that just inhabits and discards a body. We are embodied souls. That's why in Romans 6 and Romans 12, it says, honor yourself, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. And it says, offer your bodies to the Lord because our bodies are a part of who we are. So we're essentially sexed beings. We are body and soul. And the scripture consistently teaches in different ways that our gender expression, which is more a part of our soul and our actions, is to be tied to our biological sex because that's at the root of our identity of who God has made us to be. And of course, our culture severs that and thinks freedom is having a gender identity disassociated from your biological sex. And scripture says, no, you are body and you are soul. And to be obedient to the Lord is to live with those in in congruity. Now, what that looks like and how we do that, of course, takes pastoral sensitivity. It takes wisdom. It takes tremendous compassion with people. But we care about the gender issue because transgender ideology is rooted in a different understanding of what it means to be human. And I think most people promoting this are doing it because they're trying to help people. They're just wrong about it, what it means to be human and wrong about what's going to actually set us free. Yeah. And there's, uh, there's been a lot of uh, articles recently about trans regret, basically about a lot mm-hmm. of these, these young girls, especially uh, who, who kind of get into their twenties and, regret like have these horrible regrets that they had double mastectomies and that they've taken testosterone for years and so that those i think those stories are going to start to become more and more frequent i agree and i also think we're going to see some lawsuits we've seen some yeah. i think over the next five to ten years we're going to see a lot of people who say why don't you stop me why don't you tell me i yeah. now cannot have kids and this is irreversible we're going to see, I think, more and more of those pop up, sadly. Yeah. Well, we're going to leave it there. And there's, a, I mean, there's so many more uh, nuggets of wisdom in this book, A Rebel's Manifesto. I really urge 
parents to buy this, not only for your kids, but for yourselves, because it's, it's just really great. And it's, as, as Sean said in the beginning, you know, each topic it's, it's, uh, you know, it's very condensed and, and very readable and, um, and a lot of topics there's, you know, there's uh, a chapter on bullying, on loneliness, um, on drugs and addiction, et cetera, et cetera. So please pick up this book and Sean, where can people find you? You have a YouTube show, you have a YouTube channel. Where can people find you? Yeah. So my website is just seanmcdowell.org and that has a link to all the other places, but like you, I'm on YouTube and really enjoy doing interviews. It's fun posting videos. Uh, we have a podcast called think biblically. I co-host out of Biola. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. have a blog. And I don't just do like, you know, cat videos and stupid stuff. I really like you. I see your stuff. Everything I post, I'm really asking myself, is this going to bring value to people? Mm-hmm. Is it worth their time? A helpful quote, an article, an interview, an idea. A lot of my ministry is just curating content, trying to deliver it to people, Christian or not, that's quality that helps them in various ways. Yeah. Well, thank you for all that you do because it's it's very needed in our culture today. And uh, guys, thank you for joining us on the Beckett Cook Show and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Sean. You bet. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of the Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Dedicating time each day to spend feeding our minds and our hearts the truth of God's Word is immensely helpful in our growth as followers of Christ. I'm John Stonge, and each day I host a show called Daily Devotions with Pastor John. On the show, I spend just a few minutes taking an applicational look at one or two verses of Scripture before coming to the Lord in prayer. If you'd like to make a habit of spending more time meditating on the truth of God's Word, You can listen to Daily Devotions with Pastor John at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.